Join me in John chapter 16. John chapter 16, last time we were together in this section of John's gospel, we considered the glorious subject of joy, the joy given to us through sorrow. We come this morning to yet another lovely subject, and that of peace, the peace of Christ. Jesus is speaking in these final chapters, his final words to his closest disciples. He is minutes away from his arrest, from the sham trial, the mockery of justice, and his execution on a Roman cross. And as he comes to those final hours, we see him concerned for the spiritual development and growth of his closest followers. He walks us through the sacred ground of Father, Son, and Spirit united and calling us to walk in union with them. Verses 25 to 33 are our text for this morning. The main point of Jesus' words in these verses is to teach his disciples about the peace that they can have in him. The main command of our section this morning is to take heart, to be encouraged, to take courage from these truths and be built up in your faith. The main promise of this text is that Jesus has overcome the world. So the main truth is there is peace in Christ. The main command, take heart. The main promise, Jesus has overcome the world. Follow along as I read John 16, verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Verse 33 of John 16 is one of the most known and best-loved verses of John's gospel, and rightly so. It is filled with tremendous truth. It clarifies things for us and connects those truths to a powerful promise and a clear command. Verse 33 is also the key to understanding the rest of the text. So the rest of the verses, though they build up to verse 23, actually logically flow out of verse 23. Verse 23 is the high point and the main point of the text. He says to them there, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. It's the third time in John 16 alone that Jesus has made that statement to them. I have said these things to you and then given the reason for that. Back in verse 1 of chapter 16, he says, I have said these things to you so that you will not fall away when affliction Rises in verse sixteen, or verse twenty-five, excuse me. He says, "I have said these things to you plainly, no longer in figures of speech." And now in verse thirty-three, 
He says, I've said these things to you so that you may have peace in me. It's a perfect tense verb that I have said. It means that it happened once and it has ongoing consequence in the life of the disciples. It has an eternal meaning. And so he is saying to them, everything I've said to you in the upper room and especially in this text are for the purpose of you having peace in me. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? Jesus says to them, I've said all this to you so you can have peace in me. All of what he said in the upper room discourse is to give peace to his disciples, but especially this text. It is desperately needed for these men in this moment, is it not? As they face the realities of their Lord and Savior being whisked away by Roman soldiers and arrested and tried and and crucified, they needed the promises, the truths, the the settled realities of Jesus' words to give them peace. It's a peace that they didn't just need then, it's a peace you and I need now. I hardly need to sell this to you. This is like selling ice cream to a child. You need peace, right? The the wars and rumors of wars, the, the turbulence and uncertainty of our culture in America and world culture around us, the the hatred and the evil displayed in every avenue, the deceiving and the death that abounds in our culture, the the endless reasons you personally have for turmoil in your soul. The, The stew of anxiety has plenty of ingredients and it is on a hot fire in your heart and it is being stirred by the world around you this morning. And you need, just like you needed the joy of Jesus from the previous text, you need this morning the peace of Jesus from this text. And rather than seeking consolation for your own soul in something other than Christ, rather than seeing in Christ someone who tries to find a way out of the problems he's about to face, he endures his dark hour of suffering and shows you the way. He enters into his darkest hour with peace and says to you, this is the peace you too can have. He's concerned in these final moments, which just stop and be awed at your Savior again. He's concerned in these final, he knows what's happening. He knows Judas went to get the the officers to come and arrest him. He knows the, the darkest hour of his existence is just hours away. And yet in this moment, he is not concerned with himself He is concerned with his followers to equip and encourage them for when he is gone. When he says in verse 33, I've said these things to you, he means specifically this text that we have before us, verses 25 to 23. These are the key ideas to having peace in a stormy world. Did you know that John's gospel is the only gospel which records Jesus talking to his disciples about the peace they can have in him? The other Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus talks about peace, but he talks about it negatively. He says, I have not come into the world to bring peace, but rather to bring a sword. I've not come to be a friendly of the world. I've come to bring division. And there will be division, he went on to say in Luke 12, between mother and father and brother and sister. Those of your own household will turn you over and turn against you. In the Synoptic Gospels, he spoke nothing of peace to the disciples, his peace to them. Here in the upper room, before he goes to die for them, he tells them of this peace. We came across it already in John 14 when he says to them, my peace I leave with you. It's a peace that 
is not like the peace the world gives you. This is a peace, my peace, that I'm giving to you. And now he says in our text, I've spoken these words so that you can have peace in me. Now, peace is one of those those churchy words, right? We, we say it all the time. We all assume we all know what we mean, but we don't really ever define what we mean, so we don't actually know what we mean. Well, when the Scripture talks about peace, it, it has some general categories, and, and you maybe could find a few more or split it out a little differently, but this is how I, as I look through the Scriptures, found the different categories for peace. First, you have peace with God. So when the Bible talks about peace, it talks about peace with God. This is Romans 5 and verse 1, where it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we've been declared righteous before God, right with him and right before him, by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a foundational reality. It's unchanging, unrelenting, eternal. Once in Christ, you are always at peace with God, one for you by Christ. It's secure, settled, always your possession if you are in Christ. The second area of peace scripturally is peace with one another. Built upon this peace with God, we then can have peace with one another, not can have. We do have peace with one another. Ephesians 2 especially describes this in verses 14 to 15 where it says Jesus himself is our peace. He's speaking to the Ephesian church, Jews and Gentiles, different ethnicities brought together in the same body. And he says to them, Christ is our peace who made us both, Jews and Gentiles, one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Again, an unrelenting, unremitting reality. We have peace with one another in Christ. A settled truism of the Christian church. In Christ, we have peace with God. Because of Christ, we have peace with one another. Ethnicity need not divide us. Different interests need not divide us. Different spiritual giftings need not divide us. We are one in Christ and have peace with one another. Then there's peace in relationships. This is probably where you often think or where your mind often goes when you think of peace. This is the peace that we're working out between each other. So this peace with one another is a settled reality, but we don't always walk in that peace, do we? Sometimes we create conflict that takes away that peace. And so Paul says to Timothy in his last letter, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So don't walk in the flesh, walk in the Spirit. As you walk in the Spirit, pursue peace with one another. Pursue treating one another with righteousness. Pursue walking by faith and in love to one another and have peace with each other. It's something you strive for and pursue. It's the blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall have peace with God idea. Then the fourth category of peace is peace with the world. This is the negative category, of course. This is what Jesus said in John 14, that he's leaving his peace to the disciples. He's leaving it with them, not as the world gives, do I give to you. He goes on to say, James 4 drives home that point all the more and says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So if you're at peace with the world, you're at war with God. If you're at peace with God, you're at war with the world. It's a constant 
total reality for the Christian. And so we can have peace with the world and lose our peace with God experientially, I mean, not positionally, of course. And then last category is peace from God, peace from God. This is Isaiah 26, where the prophet so helpfully expresses this word of faith. He says, you, speaking to the Lord, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Isaiah is writing during a turbulent time to the nation of of Judah. He's calling them to return to the Lord. And and in the midst of all the turbulence and turmoil and the, the horrible prophecies of judgment to come, he reminds them that the one whose mind is stayed on the Lord and who trusts in the Lord knows this perfect peace from God. This is what Paul says whenever he writes a letter and he says as he greets them, Paul, the servant or the slave of God, the apostle of Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that at almost every one of his epistles throughout the New Testament. Peter also says this in 2 Peter verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 2. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. In other words, this is a, this is a reality, and an experiential possession, if you will, of heart and mind, which you can grow in. You can know more or less of this dependent upon your walk of faith before the Lord, your knowledge of the Lord, and your walking in the grace and mercy of the Lord. It's that last piece which our Lord speaks of here in the upper room in John 16. It's a piece built upon the foundation of our peace with God through Jesus, but it's a peace that we can experience in our hearts and minds to a, a higher or a lesser degree. And so you should do right now some self-evaluating as you prepare to hear how you can have more of this peace. Where are you at between you and the Lord with resting in and trusting in him, how, how at peace are you with the Lord? How much of this peace from God do you know? This is the point of our text in John 16. Jesus is saying, you, by faith, hearing my words, can have peace in me. It sounds very familiar to what Jesus said in John 15, doesn't it? When he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He is saying here, essentially, you cannot have peace apart from me. You cannot have true, lasting, real, actual peace apart from me. And to have peace, you must have it in me. So you must remain in me and abide in me, and especially abide in my words. And so he's going to give them three truths in verses 25 to 33 to point them to this real peace that they can have more of. In verses 25 to 28, he's going to tell them that they have a settled relationship with the Father, which gives them peace. Verses 29 to 32, he's going to tell them that they have a steady object for their weak faith, which gives them peace. And then in verse 33, he's going to tell them they have sure victory in a turbulent world, which gives them peace. Let's consider the first Verses 25 to 28, in Christ, we have a settled relationship with the Father. He tells them that in these four verses at the beginning of our text, there's some difficult things to to wrestle through in these verses that I won't spend the time on this morning. It's hard sometimes to know what is Jesus talking about. 
So for instance, in verse 26, he says, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I, am, that I came from God. Well, in, in what day is he talking about? Kind of moves back to verse 25. He says, The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Well, that's the day he's talking about in verse 26, but what day is that? When is that time coming? Well, apparently, to Jesus' words in the upper room, it's, it's still future, right? He says, I will do this. They take it in verse 29 to be that's what he's doing now. He meant to point them to yet a future time. And yet we don't have a, a real clear record in Scripture of when that happens. Here's what I think, for what it's worth. I think it's after he resurrects, before he ascends. And all the time he has with them, I think he's, he's essentially teaching them what John records for us in his gospel. And John's gospel is the gospel of, of this fellowship between the Father and the Son, where we see the amazing relationship between the Father who sent and the Son who came. And John lays that out for us plainer than any other gospel writer. And I think he received that from the Lord post-resurrection when their faith was completed and they, they understood all that Jesus had said ahead of time. Now he drives home the relationship between Father and Son to the apostles. And then verse 26, he, he says to them, in that day, you'll ask of the Father in my name. But he wants to make clear to them, you're not going to be asking me to ask the Father for you. It's a very important distinction Jesus makes for them because these men did not think it right at this point to go directly to the Father. No Jew did that. The Father was, was the distant one and only God. You went to him through a mediator, namely the, the priest and the high priest for the remission of your sins. Jesus is saying to them, I'm going to accomplish a work in a matter of hours which will allow you access to the Father. And you will not go to him through me. You will go to him on the basis of me, but not through me. I don't know if you had this experience growing up, but, or if you're still a teenager, have this experience now. I remember hanging out at home with my friends at my house, and we would be you know, teenage boys trying to figure out what to do next and, and what fun activity to engage in. And my friend would have a bright idea of some great thing to go do. And instead of them going to ask my parents, can we go do this? They would say, hey, go ask your dad if. And then they would lay it out, and I would have to go be the mediator and say, hey, dad, can we? And take this and go do this. And what, what are you doing? I don't know. It's my friend's idea. Let me, I'll, I'll be right back. You know how that went. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to, that's not what this relationship is. You're not going to meet me outside of the throne room of the triune God, and, and I'm going to, in prayer, hear what you say, and then I'll go in and talk to the Father for you, and I'll come back with his answer. No, Jesus says to them, what I'm going to do for you, what I'm going to accomplish for you, is a peace with God that allows you entrance into his presence. That you will now have a relationship with the Father through the Son, on the basis of the Son's work, but with the Father. And you will talk to him yourself. And he goes on to say, this is possible because you need to know, disciples, the Father loves you. The Father loves you because you believed me. You believe that I came from God and you have, have loved me. Therefore, he loves you. That Greek word for love is the one that's often used in family relationships. <clears throat> it's the idea of love that, that is relationally fostered and nurtured. 
And the idea here is that there's a, a closer and, and greater love built between disciple and father as the disciples believe in Christ and love Christ. The father loves those disciples because they believe in love. We know that's not merit-based, like we're saved because we loved. We know that. We love because he first loved us. This is after the fact of our salvation. And the father, in some mysterious way, loves us because we love the son. And Jesus says, you will have access to him and you will speak to him directly. And what is, what's he doing here for them? He, he is pastorally shepherding them to a truth they need to cling to for every moment of their journey of faith, especially when the Son is no longer in the world. He's saying, I'm soon going to be removed. But now you have access not just to me in heaven, but to the Father in heaven through me. This is so very pastorally wise of our Savior, as we would expect. But every Christian I've ever met has struggled in this category of their view of God the Father. And so much of your spiritual health, your spiritual vitality, your your growth in the grace and knowledge of Christ is dependent upon a right understanding of God the Father. And because human fathers are images of that which is true in heaven, we're made in the image of God. He is the the real, perfect, holy, good Father. We are flawed, imperfect, sinful images of that reality. And as we as fathers know all too well the damage we do to those who follow in our train and sit under our authority in our homes, We know that those people under our care must struggle through a right view of a good, perfect, always loving, always patient, always righteous, always just Father. And every one of you in this room who are in the Lord have to work through that. And I can tell you today how you're doing with the Lord by asking you one question. Describe for me your view of and relationship to your Father in heaven. And as you answer that question, I can understand where you're at with the Lord. What Jesus does here in this text is take his disciples past him to the Father, through him, I should say, to the Father, and say, this is your glorious assurance. You have a settled relationship with him through me. It's so easy to view our Father in heaven as constantly displeased with us constantly holding the ruler of discipline in his hand, waiting for us to mess up again. They can whack us and thwart us one more time. Beloved, Jesus did not have to win the love of the Father for you. He does not sit in the presence of the Father so as to remind the Father, no, 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 I love that person, you should too. No, John's already told us, and Jesus has told us in John's Gospel, John 3, verse 16, for God... God the Father so loved the world that he gave. I know the Father because of what comes next, because he gave his only, one and only Son. The Father's love for you is settled before he ever created you. So today, as you wrestle through your own guilt and struggle with sinfulness and doubting to believe that the Father loves you, that God loves you, No, through the words of Jesus, you have a settled relationship 
if you are in Christ by grace through faith. Next, he says that they have a steady object for their weak faith, and so too do we in verses 29 to 32. The disciples in verse 29 kind of comically express that, hey, all of a sudden we get it. Hey, thanks for no longer talking in, in, uh, in images and, and word pictures. Now we understand you're speaking plainly. And they make this great confession in verse 30 that we now know that you know all things and you don't need anyone to question you and, and we're so glad that you've settled this and this is why we believe you came from God. And I, I sound sarcastic in my voice. I don't mean to be. They were sincere in what they said and, and they believed what they said. And, and as far as it went, it was great. But Jesus knows what's coming next and he gently yet directly says to them, yeah, but. Yeah, yeah thanks, but. You believe now, but there's a severe test of your faith coming upon you. And that testing that's going to come is Jesus' own arrest and trial and crucifixion and burial. Jesus quotes Zechariah 13 and says that when the shepherd is arrested or struck, the sheep will be scattered. These disciples in this moment in the upper room are, are like those new army recruits who have watched all these military videos and they think they're going to be some amazing commando in the army and, and then they enter in and, and they get into their first battle sequence and they hear the bullets flying and the bombs bursting and they're running for cover and wetting themselves out of fear. The, the test of their bravado proved how weak they actually were. These disciples in the upper room are convinced that they are brave and strong in their faith. Soon, the test of their faith is going to leave them shell-shocked. They're going, to, they're going to run and depart and go to their own homes. And Jesus says clearly to them in verse 31, this is how it's going to go. Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come. When you will be scattered, each to his own home, or literally each to one's own. And he will leave me, and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I love how Jesus doesn't crush their weak faith. He doesn't chide them. He doesn't say, guys, this is pathetic. I've been with you for three years, and this is the best you can do in the upper room. No, as he prepares them with his words, he gently affirms their faith. You believe now, but just know. He speaks plainly with them about the reality of the trials to come. And he says, you will abandon me and though I may be alone, humanly speaking, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. That's obviously a point of great comfort for our Lord. And this ought to be instructive for us. And I, I think you know this promise and cling to it, but I do not think I can lay it before you often enough. Your Father is, is with you, though everyone else abandoned you. Though every other reality in life wither away through trial and circumstance, though every other relationship fail you. Your Father is forever with you. And Jesus says, I am never alone. We also are never alone. We know this from Joshua 1.9 and Hebrews 13 and verse 5, where the promise is reiterated, I will never leave you and never forsake you. So friend, this morning, that simplest of promises can provide the surest of comforts. This morning, our Father is walking with you. Jesus means more than just to comfort himself, though. When he says that you'll leave me, but the Father will not, 
He's letting them know that, that they have a steady object for their weak faith. He's letting them know that, that though you're going to fail the test, I, your Savior, will not fail the test. The Father will carry me through and see me through to the end, and I will not abandon my mission. I will faithfully give my life to die for you. I've come for that purpose. I will fulfill every part, every minutia prophesied of my work, and it will be triumphantly done, and I will declare on the cross to Telestai, it is finished. And my Father will put his mark of approval upon my work by resurrecting me from the grave in three days. Jesus says, it is a work you can take to the bank. And so, beloved, there's blessed hope here found in our Lord. We never are as strong as we presume. Our faith is is never as robust as we would like to think it is. We never stand as, as firm and resolute as we might project to others. We're often weak and primed for our own failure, and we're confronted with that when the test hits and the bombs fly and explode in our lives. But beloved, Jesus is strong and faithful. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He is the steady object of our weak faith in this stormy world. He is our unfailing ark. Though all the world be covered in floodwaters of judgment, Jesus is our steady ark. Enter into him and be safe. He is our sure and steady anchor that will hold our ship in its spot in the most violent of storms. He is our sure Savior, rescuing us from the hurricane force storms of life and the eternal flames of hell. Beloved, it is not your faith in Jesus which saves and preserves you and gives you peace. It is the Jesus of your faith. Look to him. Lastly, he says, in Christ, in him, we have a sure victory in a turbulent world. A sure victory in a turbulent world. It was a little disingenuous to say lastly, because we're about halfway through, just to let you know that. There's a sure victory in Christ in a turbulent world. He's just told them that they will all scatter and abandon him in verse 32. And then in verse 33, he says, you're going to face tribulation in the world when I leave. This is instructive for us as he tells us the realities up front of what is to come in following him. And Jesus always did this. And we should follow his path here. When we speak to others about placing their faith in Jesus and giving their lives to following him, we better be honest with them about what that's going to cost. Because Jesus always was. Discipleship's going to look like taking up your cross daily and following after him. It's going to have to look like you turning from all other loyalties and affinities. It's going to look like you abandoning all unrepentant sin and coming to follow Jesus wholeheartedly to leaving the world's way of thinking and believing and to to follow and believe in Jesus alone. He said this often throughout the Gospels. He says it to them again. Listen, when I leave, you will have tribulation in the world. In Christ, he says, you'll have peace. But in the world, tribulation. There's two different tenses of those verbs. The, The have for tribulation is a present active. It's just an ongoing reality. In the world, you will have tribulations, just how it is. The first one, the first verb, have, is that perfect tense again. It's, 
it's something that you can grow in. It's a settled reality, but one that you can, can know the consequences of all the more in your life. These are really the two addresses of the Christian, aren't they? You're in the world and you're in Christ. Physically, you're in the world. That's your, your physical address. And spiritually, you're in Christ. That's your spiritual address. In the one, you have eternal, unending joy and peace. And in the other, you have unending tribulation, trial, and trouble. And you ask, well, what kind of trial, trouble, tribulation is this? Well, just think through the book of Acts. The the followers of Christ faced immediate difficulty when they expressed faith in Jesus and followed after him. What was that difficulty? Well, it was the religious leaders turning on them. So as we follow Christ, we can expect those who are are serving in a religion of demons to turn on us. To say what we're saying is wrong and that we need to be quieted and canceled in our culture. And the religious elites in our culture are doing that very thing. And religion doesn't always look the same, does it, in every culture. But as they hold to the religion of their naturalistic, humanistic worldview, as they worship at the altar of self, and as they demand us do the same and let them have their way with our children... And we say, no, this is not biblical. This is not honoring the Lord. This is not truth. This is not right. This is not the way. As they peddle their gospel of self-actualization, where you save yourself by getting to know yourself and express yourself more, and we stand in our offices and in our friendships and in our neighborhoods, and we say, well, listen, actually, there's a better gospel than that. In fact, there's a gospel that, that saves body and soul. A gospel that you don't actually have to do anything to, to take part in. It's a gospel that's been completed for you. It's a gospel that's not about you at all, actually. It's a gospel about a man who's lived long ago, who came as God in the flesh to live a life of perfect righteousness in your place. To take his righteous life to a Roman cross and die an executionary death as your substitute under the penalty and condemnation of your sin, which you earned as you rebelled against a holy God. And his sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to save your soul if you will but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. See, friend, you don't have to do anything but believe in the Lord Jesus. And this gospel is not dependent on you in any way. It is what Christ has done for you. This, my friend, is good news. And And maybe by God's grace and kindness, some will respond in faith and believe and be added to the church. And we pray that way every Sunday, nay, every day. But in large part, our culture will mock and sneer at that gospel. It will sound so foreign and so ridiculous and so shameful that they will turn on us and oppose us and eventually persecute us in various ways. And that looked like, in the book of Acts, financial and social and relational and physical oppression and pushback against the message of the gospel. See, the world simply is not friendly to the follower of Christ because the world is not friendly to Christ himself. And Jesus said that back in John chapter 14 or 13. He said, if if you want to be like me, you'll do as the teacher did. You'll suffer as the teacher suffered. They treated me this way. You can know they will treat you this way. 
The epistles validate that message as Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.12 that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You see, beloved, in the world you will have tribulation. If you choose to follow Christ, if you pursue a godly, Christ-honoring life, the world will be opposed to you. But there's this tremendous turn in the text. It's near the end of verse 33. Jesus says, but take heart. But take heart. It's a present active command. It's the only command in the text. It's a unique command in the gospel records. It addresses someone in a very needy, desperate, disheartening situation. One they can't solve themselves. One that that would cause you to just go, woe is me, I'm going to lick my wounds and die. It's what was said to, in Matthew 9 to the, to the paralytic whose friends brought him to Jesus to be healed. And Jesus, seeing the paralytic who really had no hope for a normal life and no hope for even a good spiritual life, Jesus looked at him and says, Take heart, your sins are forgiven you. Later in that same chapter, you remember the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years, went to all the doctors, and is all they took was her money and gave her no cure for her illness. Here she is 12 years in. She sees Jesus. She's heard of his healing power. She doesn't want to make a scene. She thinks, if I can just touch his garment, I will be healed. She has such faith in who he is as the Son of God in the flesh. She thinks, if I can just get near him, I will be healed. She touches him. Power from Jesus goes out from him and heals her immediately. He turns and says, who touched me? The disciples mock him. Are you kidding me, Lord? Who touched you? You're in a massive crowd. We all have. No, no, no. Who touched me? The woman comes forward in fear and trepidation. I did. Jesus looks upon her and says, take heart, daughter. Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. In Mark 6, the disciples are rowing hard across the Sea of Galilee. The wind is strong against them, gale force storm winds, and they are making precious little progress across the sea. It's the middle of the night. Jesus is not with them, and they see this figure walking on the water through wind and wave, and they are terrified, thinking it is a ghost. And he says to them, in a situation they had no answer for in themselves, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. He got in their boat, and they were immediately at their destination. Mark 10, Jesus is making the final trek to Jerusalem, coming up to his own death, burial, and resurrection. He passes through Jericho. He's performing amazing miracles and speaking Marvelous truce on this journey. He comes to the city of Jericho. There's a blind man named Bartimaeus who hears that Jesus is coming through town. He starts crying out, Lord, son of David, son of David, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. The crowd's tired of this man's bellowing for the Lord, and they turn to him and tell him to be quiet. Knock it off. He doesn't want to talk to you. He has more important things to do than deal with you, you blind man. Be quiet. Our Lord catches wind of what's happening, and he says, who is calling for me? Bring him here. And the crowd turns to Bartimaeus, and they say to him, take heart. Take heart. Get up. He is calling you. Beloved, this is a wonderful adversative, 
a wonderful contrast in the text of Scripture. Take heart. You have tremendous tribulation in the world, weighing heavy upon you, insurmountable to you. Problems you have no answer for, trials you have no way out of, sorrows that lay heavy upon you and may not relent until your final breath. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. Take courage. Be encouraged. Be confident. Don't be downcast and forlorn. Don't let your soul be noisy within you, clamoring about you with all of your proposed solutions to all of your persistent problems. Don't let your mind run amok with all the ways you're going to figure this out and make things right for God because he obviously isn't interested. Let your mind be at ease. Let your heart find the courage to move forward into the dark valley that the Lord has laid before you when you don't know what blow comes around the next rock. Step forward in courage. Take Heart, beloved, he says. Take heart. If you're going to say that, you better have massive claims to back up the command. Right? Because the massive problems are not overcome by an easy, there, there, it'll be all right, little child, just move forward. It'll all work out in the end. It'll, It'll all be okay. You'll get through this somehow. Yeah, yeah, there, there. Shed your tears. It'll be fine. I'll cry with you, and then we'll move on. No, no, no. If you're going to say, in the world you have tribulation, but take heart, you better have a good reason for saying take heart. And Jesus does. He says, I have overcome the world. Again, a perfect tense verb by which he's saying that he has done this. It's as good as done. It is ongoing, his overcoming reality over the world. Where are we in the timeline of the life of Jesus? We're in the upper room. We're before the reality of his sorrow, suffering, death, burial, and resurrection. This is an audacious claim, do you not think? If you were staring down Mount Calvary in your own journey, would you Claim beforehand, I have overcome the world. Certainly after you resurrected, absolutely. Shout it from the rooftops and everyone who follows in your train should shout it for the rest of their days. Christ has overcome the world. He has risen from the grave. Before he ever goes there, he says, I have overcome the world. He does not see his own suffering as defeat, but as victory. He does not go to the cross as a victim but as a victor. He does not go to be defeated by the cross, but to defeat sin and death and hell at the cross. And it is that glorious reality which compels him to say to his disciples in the upper room and to every disciple who's followed after them, take heart. I have overcome the world. Beloved, if Jesus can face the cross of Calvary, with this confident assurance of sure victory, then can we not also face whatever dark, difficult reality lays in front of us 
as we walk by faith in him? Can we not also claim this victory of our Lord Jesus? Is that not exactly what he's saying here? In the world you'll have tribulation, but you don't need to be defeated by the world, right? Take heart. I have overcome the world. I want you to notice what Jesus does not say here. He does not say to them, I have overcome the world and shown you the way to overcome. Therefore, fight like I fought. I've shown you how to be victorious, so now you go and be victorious. That's not what he says. He says, I have overcome the world. I have settled this. I have won for you the victory needed in this sin-cursed world. Now, you have battles to fight in a sin-cursed world. You, Paul says at the end of his life, I have fought the good fight of faith. You have battles at every turn, it seems, as you seek to follow Christ in all ways. But the difference here is that you do not fight in those battles for victory, but from victory. You don't fight so as to make the victory happen. You you fight because the victory has happened. And Christ himself has become the victor and given you victory in him. So indeed, Paul can say in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us so. Neither death, nor life, nor principalities, nor powers, nor tribulations, nor trials, nor any other thing can keep you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us so. So it's helpful, I think, to ask at this point, in what ways did Jesus overcome the world? So if you have victory in Christ's victory, and if he overcame the world on your behalf, then can you not expect to fight the battles he had to fight? And can you not then claim by faith his victory in those battles and walk by faith that he will help you have peace in the midst of the battle? We see in Matthew 4 that he defeated temptation. You maybe could think of some others, other ways that Christ had victory over the world. These came immediately to mind for me. He defeated temptation. Matthew 4, Satan comes upon Jesus and tempts him in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights lures him with the the desires of his human flesh to enter into sin. And Jesus fights against the world with the word of God. Says famously in that text, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So beloved, how can you face the temptation that will come upon your soul today? Dig deep, brother and sister, and find that spiritual grid inside of you and figure it out. Fight Satan with everything you've got. Is that what it says? No, faith is the victory in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has victoriously overcome temptation on your behalf. Thereby you walk after Christ, eyes firmly fixed on him, and have victory in him over temptation. He also defeated opposition in John 8 and John 10. The rulers try to come and kill Jesus prematurely, have him abort his mission, put pressure on him to stop talking like he's talking, stop purporting the message he is preaching to others, and he is not thwarted. He overcame the world's opposition. He also defeated guilt. This is clear in Colossians 2, and then again in Romans 7, beginning into chapter 8. Paul says in Colossians 2, you were dead in trespasses 
and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. How do you have peace in your guilty state? Because you are guilty. You are a sinner. You have earned the righteous wrath of a holy God. How do you appease the guilt? How are you freed? How do you have victory over the condemnation you yourself have earned? You have it only in Jesus Christ our Lord. This he took to the cross, nailed it there, and it is done. It is finished. So, brother, sister, what should you do when the accuser of your soul comes against you and reminds you of all the ways you are guilty before a righteous God? Similar to what we see him doing before God in heaven for Job. Accusing Job of loving God only because God's been good to him. Man, Satan could make that accusation of of my heart and likely be very right many times. What ought you do when he comes against you and reminds you of past sins? Sins that haunt your memory and still distort your relationships. And throws it at you to suck you into the quagmire of guilt. Well, where's the victory found? In what you did? No, no, I I confessed that. And I've moved past that. I've dealt with my past behavior. I'm no longer that person, Satan. Leave me alone. No, where's the victory found? In Christ. In Christ. It's been nailed to his cross. You have been crucified with him. You no longer live in your sinful flesh. You now live in Christ. He also defeated worldly powers. This is the next verse in Colossians 2. Where Paul says that he disarmed, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities, and I think spiritual rulers and authorities, similar to Ephesians 6, when he says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers in this present evil age. It's a similar thought here. There's spiritual powers at work beyond our comprehension, and they have some kind of power and authority at work in the world. And Jesus has defeated them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in himself. And so we walk in that victory. We don't have to succumb to the the evil ways of a devil-dominated world. We now can walk in Christ, in freedom and in joy and in his strength because he has overcome. He also defeated sin, Romans 6, 1 to 14. Sin no longer has authority over you. It's no longer your, your master if you are in Christ. You've been crucified with Christ. You've been buried with Christ. You've been raised with Christ. And you now walk forward in Christ. And so Paul says in 6, 11, 12, 13, 14, reckon that to be so. Consider it to be true, because it is, and walk in faith that he has defeated sin. So when sin comes upon your soul and says to you, hey, I'm back, and it's time to sin again, you want this. And when those idolatrous lusts we heard about last week prey upon your heart and try to get you to to pursue after a wicked thing in Christ. You do not have to go there. 
The victory over that moment of of sinful dominance over your heart is not found in you. It's not found in in others holding you accountable. It's not found in some Bible study you might do that unlocks some key to your sanctification. The key to your sanctification in that moment is Jesus. He has overcome the power of sin for you. Walk by faith in him. Jesus also has defeated death. This is 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter, but especially Verses 54 and following where he quotes the prophet and says, Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O grave, is your victory? The sting of sin is death, and the sting of death is the law. But God has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Life ever seem futile to you? Worthless? Not much to it? Why bother? You know why you think that way? Because you're going to die. That's why. If you weren't going to die, you would think that there's, there's meaning and value because I'm, I'm building forever and ever. But because you know that your life here is temporary, you're prone to give in to the thought that it's, it's vanity, it's worthless. It means nothing. And apart from Christ, it means nothing. What's the answer to that? Well, it's the defeat of death in Christ. That's why Paul says at the end of chapter 15, then therefore, beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in his work. Then he defeated present evil. This is Galatians 6, or 1, 4, and 6, 14. And then especially 1 John 5, 4 to 5, where the text says, John writing later in a, in a letter, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So, beloved, we walk every day in triumphal procession behind Christ's victory in these areas. And our key to victory in these battles is to walk by faith in Christ, to reckon it to be so, his victory to be our victory, His grace to be upon us to walk forward in that victory. So I ask you today, where is the enemy of your soul pressing upon you? Where is he attacking you? Where is the tribulation of the world endangering your faith? Beloved, take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the power of your word upon our heart. We desperately need to hear and heed this text. So we pray that you would imprint it upon us in an indelible fashion, one in which we could never escape from, that we might know and grow in this peace that you give us in a world of tribulation. Father, we praise you for those among us who may not yet know this peace. We praise you because they're here and hearing about this peace. And we ask, Lord, that today would be the day of their salvation, that they would know peace with you through your Son. Lord, we pray that you would mercifully rescue them and make them a trophy of your grace. Thank you for your work in our lives. May you be praised with its result as we walk by faith this week. In Jesus' name.